Well, once again, welcome to Harvest. We're so glad that you're here today to worship, and uh, we want to continue to worship the Lord through the study of His Word. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab that. And uh, if you need a Bible, there's some hardback black ones around uh, on the floor and the chairs around you. Um, if you can't tell by trying to breathe in here, everything has been overly sanitized and Lysawed and everything else. All the Bibles got wiped down, so they're safe. Um, so you're, you're good to go. We're going to just dug, dig into this morning together. Um, so we've been working through the book of Acts, and... Um, we are in kind of this middle section now where we're talking about the family of God and how that we as the, as the church are brought together um, by the Holy Spirit to be family to one another um, in working through him and, and, and him working in us. And, um, and so today we're going to look at how, does, how do we be the family of God in a way that is unified. The Bible talks a lot and Jesus stresses in his time on the earth the importance of unity and the people of God, and, and unity is super important for us, and um, it's not just, uni- unity is different than uniformity, and we're going to look at the difference of that today, and, and why we need one uh, rather than the other, and how that plays into our time together um, with one another in, in worship, and in life, and with the Lord, and so uh, Acts 15 is where we're landing this morning. When I was um, in college, uh, I was an RA for most of my time, that's a resident assistant, um, which basically means our primary job was to be everyone's mother on the dorm floor. Um, but beyond that, we also ran all the uh, resident life events. So we would do things like Super Bowl parties and movie nights and paintball outings. And um, we even had this thing called Twerp Week, um, best week of the year. It was, like a, it was like a whole week of Sadie Hawkins, right? So the girls had to ask the guys out, and they had to pay, and it was, it was primo. Um, but we would, we would run all these events for all the residents in the dorms. And, and the purpose of the events was to create community, right? To, to bring them together in relationships and, and to help create this family kind of feel there in the dorms. And, and for some of the residents, it worked. Like they would connect, they would build relationships and it was good. But for a lot of them, they would come to the events just for the food, right? They would grab the food and they would go back to their rooms and it never really connected. And if you didn't have food at the event, forget it. Like college kids are not coming if there's not food. That's just the way it works. And so... Um, but they would come, they would get the food, they would go back to their dorm rooms, and they would never really connect in the community, right? And the reason that is, is because here's the secret. Food is never going to create unity. It's just not, right? Don't get me wrong. We love food around here, right? But food was not going to bring them together to create relationships and be a family like what we were trying to do. And the same is true in the church, okay? No, we're not getting rid of the donuts or the coffee. You don't have to freak out, Okay. But I'm just saying, church events, membership classes, programs, food, all of that, that is not going to create unity in a church. What we need for unity in the church can only be found in one thing, one place, actually one person, and that is Jesus Christ. He has to be the foundation. He has to be the source for true unity in the family of God. So we're going to see how that plays out here in the early church in Acts 15. And that only the Son of God can give me true unity with the family of God. Only the Son of God can give me true unity with the family of God. Let me see if I can show that to you here. Acts 15, starting in verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers that unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, 
Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Here's the first thing I want you to see in the text today. Jesus plus is a false gospel. Jesus plus is a false gospel. Let me me show you what I mean by that. So it says there were some men that came up to Antioch from Jerusalem, right? So Paul and Barnabas are back in Antioch. Now they finished their little missionary journey. We did that last week. Now these guys come up from Jerusalem and they start teaching all the new disciples there in Antioch, but they start teaching them that they need to be circumcised in order to be saved, which is a problem because you automatically just lose at least half of the adult males at that point, right? They're like, no, sorry, I'm out. If that's what it takes, peace, right? But they're like, listen, you need to be circumcised, and more than that, you need to follow the law of Moses. You see, for the Jewish people, they thought they were God's chosen nation, God's chosen people, and the sign that you were Jewish was that you had been circumcised. And that meant that you were going to follow all the laws of the Old Testament. So basically what they're saying is here is if you want to be a Christian, you got to be like us. Before you can be a Christian, you have to become a Jew. You have to convert to Judaism, to our laws, to our religion. You have to look like us if you're going to do this Christian thing. That's what they were saying. So Paul and Barnabas, says they had no small dissension or debate with them. Paul's like, oh, no, you didn't, right? Because he knows he, he's ready to throw down over this one because this is a complete threat to the gospel. He has been there. He has done that. He has the t-shirt. Right? Like, he knows what it means between religion and the gospel. He lived that law life for too long. And man, we're not going back there, he says. And so they have this little debate going on and they knew this was a big deal that had to get settled. And so it says they appointed Paul and Barnabas and some others to go up to Jerusalem to get the counsel of the apostles and the elders. Like we need the, we need the, we need the, the church, the, the leaders of the church to weigh in on this and give us a, a clear direction and answer here. So they make a little trek. But it's interesting, it says, and they sent them on their way. So as they're going, they have to pass through all these other little regions and towns, right? So they go through Phoenicia and Samaria. And it says that um, they were describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. So here's Paul, right? Got this group of like half Paul and Barnabas and half like these guys from Jerusalem and they're heading back and they're having this fight over whether Gentiles are really saved. In every city they go to, Paul's like, hey, by the way, let me tell you what happened with the Gentiles, right? Like he doesn't care about the debate, man. He's telling everybody what God has done in the Gentiles. I mean, he saved them. He gave them the Holy Spirit. They got baptized. And by the way, they're not Jews yet, but they got their thing done, right? They're getting saved all over the place. He's excited about it. He's sharing this with others. And they finally get to Jerusalem. It says the church welcomed them. And then they declared to the church all that God had done. That's the emphasis of this whole chapter. Not what Barnabas did, not what Paul did, not what somebody else did, what God had done. This was God working in the lives of the Gentiles. And that's all the proof we really need that this is a legit salvation for them. But nonetheless, despite the testimony of Paul and Barnabas, it says the Pharisees rose up. So there's this group there of, of Christians who are all, used to be Jewish and were Pharisees, and they're trying to figure this whole thing out. And so they rise up and they say, hey, they need to be circumcised, and they need to keep the law of Moses. So they just double down 
on the whole thing. In other words, they need to fall in line with our religion, right? If they're going to be a part of us, they've got to be like us. They've got to do our thing. You see, this was all they knew. Like, sometimes I think we read stuff like this in the New Testament, being on this side of it, and we, we kind of get harsh with these guys. But these guys grew up under this yoke of religion their entire lives. I mean, it's kind of, a, it's kind of mind-blowing that they even became Christians at all, right? That they, that they could even take that step of faith to say that Jesus is what saves beyond the law was a huge step for them. And so now they're Jewish and they're Christian and they're trying to figure out how do those things fit together and how does that all work? And their answer is, if I'm going to be Jewish and Christian, then I need Jesus plus religion. Right? I need Jesus, but I also need the law of Moses. I also need circumcision. I also need all these other parts of my religion. I have to have both if I'm really going to make it. That was their solution. Jesus plus religion is a false gospel. Whether Jewish religion or whatever other religion you want to tag on there, that's not, what, that's not how it works. In fact, let me say it like this. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Jesus plus anything ruins everything because once we start adding stuff, we're saying that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't good enough. And so I think one of the things that's playing out here in this is not just the gospel side, but it's this whole idea of unity versus uniformity. I don't think they had a clear distinction on the two. So let's kind of dive into this because I think it applies for us today as well as the modern day church. So unity is, is union and harmony in a group of people, usually around one idea or, or, or thing, right? So it's coming together in union and harmony in an agreement of, like, we are together on this, whatever this is. For the church, unity comes through our shared identity in Jesus Christ. It comes because we have all been saved by the same guy. <laughs> because we all have our hope and our trust and our lives are all connected to the same God, Jesus Christ. That's the point of our unity. Uniformity, on the other hand, is having the same form or manner or degree. It's dressing alike and talking alike and eating the same foods and having the same job or having the same pastimes. That's uniformity, when we all look like each other. And uniformity in the church comes when we start making everybody share the same religious rules and the same expectations and the same requirements. If you have to do this and this and this, you have to check all these boxes if you're going to be a part of our church. It's a pseudo-unity because it's based on external behaviors rather than on the internal heart of faith in Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is when the fact that we try to, try to mix or, or we confuse unity and uniformity is that uniformity actually takes away from unity. Here's what I mean by that. Unity is best seen, it's most powerful, when the people who are in unity are not alike, when they're not the same, right? When we all come together and we say, we're all here because we love Jesus, but we look different and we talk different and we have different backgrounds and different political views and different, you know, socioeconomic classes, like, that's a good thing because if we all came together and we all, you know, drove the same car and wore the same clothes and everybody, like, well, yeah, of course they're together. Look at them. They're all the same. But when they look at us and we're all different, they're like, that's weird. Why are those people hanging out together? Right? 
Have you ever, have you ever felt that way in church? You're like, dude, if, if, if it was anywhere else, I would never hang out with you. Right? Like, let's just be honest. Can we be honest in church today? Right? Like, like we're just not alike. Like, we don't have anything else in common, but we have Jesus. And there's a unity in that that supersedes everything else. And it's a unity that the world is looking for. They get enough of the uniformity where everybody has to act the same and look the same. That's everywhere. What they need is unity that goes above and beyond all of that, that is connected to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christian unity requires Jesus and only Jesus. That's it. Not Jesus plus anything else, because Jesus plus anything ruins everything, including unity in the church. Because as soon as we add something, it takes our hope off of him and puts it on this extra thing. I have, um, I've often bragged about Courtney's cooking, and with good reason, because she rocks at it. But, um, but one of the things, it's not just that the food tastes good, it's that she, just, she has a way of putting together the whole meal and planning out the whole thing. And, and every week she does this fantastic job of planning all the meals for our family and keeping us in eating good food on a good budget. And uh, I don't know how that's going to work this week. I don't know if there's any food left in St. Louis. But somehow we're going to get food for this next week. And if we don't, then we don't have toilet paper anyway. So it's all good. It just all evens out. So, but, but she does the thing. Every week we sit down. So Sunday night, the kids go to bed. We're watching TV. She gets her calendar out. And she starts planning out the meals for the week. And the conversation inevitably goes like this. So, so what do you want for, the, for dinner this week? I'm like, I don't care. Whatever's, whatever. And she's like, you're not much help. And I'm like, no, it's all good. Just pick whatever we haven't had recently, and it, it's fine. Just put it on the calendar, and I'll be fine. And we kind of go back and forth with this thing. But a couple weeks ago, we had a different conversation. We're sitting there. She's filling out the calendar. She turns to me. She's like, hey, what do you, what do you think about a baked potato night? And I kind of paused, and I'm like, like waiting, you know, for the rest of the menu. I'm like, and she's like, no, no, just baked potatoes and, and the toppings, and, like, that's the, that's the thing. And I'm like, yeah, like, don't get me wrong, I love me some potatoes, right? Mashed, baked, sweet, fried, all that's good. But there's a reason why the phrase is meat and potatoes, right? Like, there's a reason those things are together, because you need one with the other. And so I'm like, I don't know if that's going to work. I don't think baked potato is enough to fill the whole meal. We need to add something to that. We need something else to make it work. That alone isn't enough. That's what the Jewish believers here are saying about Jesus. He's not enough. That Jesus alone isn't enough to get the job done. We got to add something to it. We got to put some more stuff around it and around him to, to really fill it out and make it work. But that's not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus didn't come to complete what Moses already began. I'm sorry, scratch that. I said that backwards. Moses doesn't complete what Jesus began. Jesus came to complete what Moses began. It's finished in him. We don't need any of the other anymore. And the same goes for us today. I know, like for them, it was Jewish religion. It was food laws and circumcision and all this weird stuff. We don't deal with that today. But there are lots of other ways that the current day church tries to add stuff to Jesus. Maybe it's our denomination. Maybe it's our mode of baptism or our frequency of communion or the style of worship 
that we like or the dress code or your giving record or your good works or we have to have something extra that Jesus plus this really makes you a Christian. But the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, there is nothing that could ever add anything to what Jesus has already done. Everything else is so much further below him that it wouldn't even matter if you tack it on top. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. That's the first thing that we have to understand about the gospel. We have to understand about unity in the church. Let's keep going though. Look at verse six. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So they get together in Jerusalem and it says, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that, not, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we, have, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they were finished speaking, James replied, this is James, Jesus' half-brother, who got saved after his resurrection, who has now become like the head of the entire church, okay? So James says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And he reads some Old Testament scriptures here from hundreds of years prior that says this, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord in all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Point number two is this. Jesus alone is the true gospel. That's the source of unity that we all agree we're 100% on board. Jesus alone is the true gospel. Here, Luke lays out for us three testimonies that are given in this little court hearing about this issue in the church. First, we start with Peter. And Peter's whole story is like, listen, guys, God did this. Like, I don't even know why we're talking about it. I don't know why this is even an argument or a, dis a discussion because God has clearly done this, right? He said, first he sent me, God made a choice that the Gentiles should hear and believe by my mouth. I was there. They heard the gospel and they believed. And guess what? They didn't become Jews before they did it. They were Gentiles when they believed. And he said, the reason that this matters, the reason God brought this gospel to them is because it's not about their religion or their law. He says, God who knows the heart. Faith is a heart issue. It's not a works issue. It's not a religion issue. It's about does your heart believe and trust in Jesus Christ? He goes on to say, God bore witness by giving them the Holy Spirit, right? Like I was there, they believed, they got the Holy Spirit, just like we got him. And the Holy Spirit is always the true mark of faith. Do you wanna, sometimes people worry, like I prayed this prayer one time when I was a kid or whatever at this, at this event, and I think I'm saved, but I'm not really sure. You know how you know for sure? After you prayed, after you accepted Christ, you got the Holy Spirit. If you didn't get the Holy Spirit, then we need to go back and talk about that. 
Because the Holy Spirit is the true mark. Then he comes and he fills you and he indwells you and he starts to change you from the inside out. Not a list of rules, but he starts to change your heart so that you want to follow Jesus. This is the mark that Peter points to. He says it wasn't circumcision. It was the Holy Spirit that God gave them. He said he's made no distinction between us and them. Just faith, not the law. There's no distinction. It's it's just, do they believe? Do we believe? Then yes, we're in. And I love this argument. He says, why would you put a yoke on them that we haven't been able to bear? (laughs) We've been trying to do this law thing for hundreds of years, and we never got to righteousness with that. So what makes you think that they're going to be able to do it? He says, all of us, Jews, Gentiles, it doesn't matter. We have all been saved through grace. So that's Peter's testimony, which is pretty good. But we get some more. Then Paul and Barnabas step up, and they start telling the signs and the wonders that God did. So when we went with them on their missionary journey the last couple weeks, we saw all the miracles that God was doing through them. That was a sign. That was a, a showing to the people that God is in this. God's blessing is on this because he's working through these miracles to bring people to faith. And then finally, James steps up and he says, everything that you just heard is true because God told us it was true way back hundreds of years ago when he wrote this down through the prophets. And he quotes the prophets as saying that all the Gentiles who are called by my name, God had already told us that he was going to bring Gentiles into the family. And not that they had to become Jews first that they were going to be saved through faith and be in. All of us are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. I grew up in uh, church, and I've been around churches my whole life, or most of my life, been in in ministry for a while now. I've seen a lot of different churches, and, and unfortunately, too oftentimes, churches act a lot like the Jewish Christians in this story. They expect unbelievers or even new believers to act like mature believers, right? If you're going to come, if you're going to come to our church, and if you're going to be here, then you got to look like us, and you got to talk like us, and you got to dress like us, and you got to follow these rules, you got to do this thing just right. That's what it means to be a part of church. And when we think that way, and when we act that way, even if we don't say it out loud of our culture is that, it tells us and it tells each other and it tells people that Jesus isn't enough. That you need Jesus plus all the stuff to get in. But that's a false gospel. This is why, this is just a little bit of Christology for a moment here. This is why the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh is so important to the gospel, right? This particular fact of Christ is foundational to the gospel being true. Because here, let me give it to you this way. Think about this. Let's say one of us in one of our greater moments of valor stepped up and said, hey, I'll do it right here. I'll I'll, I'll die for the sins of the world. Like, put me on the cross. I'll do it. I'll die for everybody. Give it to me. And let's say we did that. My sacrifice on that cross would never satisfy the righteousness of God. Because what I'm sacrificing is a sin-stained, broken, rebellious heart and life. 
It's not enough to satisfy the holy righteousness of God. If I or you or any other human would have been the sacrifice on the cross, we would have needed to add something to it because it never would have been enough. But that's not who Jesus is. Because he was the holy, perfect, blameless God in the flesh who came and lived a perfect, sinless life and died on the cross in our place for our sins as a substitute, that's what makes the sacrifice perfect. Because he was perfect. And so we don't need anything else. When he said on the cross, it is finished, he meant it 100%. And they took him down and they put him in the tomb. And three days later, he rose back to life to show us that it was perfect, to show us that he was God, that he had conquered sin and death. And we were free from all the other requirements. All we had to do was to believe in him, repent of sin, believe in Jesus, and be saved and forgiven. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the whole thing. Because God came and gave his perfect life for us, we can be made perfect through him. You understand that? When we we put our faith in Christ, we don't just get a get out of hell free card. We get the perfect righteousness of God put on us like a robe. Where God sees us as nothing but holy and blameless and his perfect children. Nothing else is required. We get it all through him. Jesus alone is all I need to be saved. That's the true gospel. I hope you already have that. If you're here today and you don't have that yet, if if that's new to you or if you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus in a way that says Jesus alone is enough, then I pray and I plead that you do that today. That right now you turn to Christ and ask him to save you from your sin and give you that perfect righteousness. Story finishes up in verse 19. Let's read together, look at it. It says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles. This is James talking, by the way. Uh, Should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from the brother among the brothers, with the following letter. And it basically says what James just said. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, 
that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Last point today is this. Jesus minus is a deficient gospel. Jesus minus is a deficient gospel. So they have this meeting. James kind of leading the whole thing. He said, all right, here's the judgment. Here's what I think we should do, right? First of all, don't trouble the Gentiles with the Jewish law. They don't need that. Just ask them to do four things. Just abstain from four things. First, first of all, idol sacrifices, okay? The reason he says this is because back then in the, in, the, in the Gentile world, they had lots of different temples, lots of different gods. They were polytheistic, and they would take animals in, and they would sacrifice animals to these different gods. And then after the sacrifice was done, they would take the meat of the animal out to the marketplace and sell it at a reduced price. And so a lot of people would come and buy the cheaper meat to feed their families because it was cheaper. And so, but it had been used in a false worship act to this God. And so they're like, listen, that's going to be a problem. It's, it's false worship, and that's, just don't do that. Let's just stay away from that particular type of sacrificial meat. And then he says, abstain from sexual immorality, which obviously is, is something that the Bible teaches anyways. But again, it's kind of here tied, I think, to the idea of worship. And a lot of these temples would have temple prostitutes. And part of the worship was that sometimes they would go and engage with these prostitutes in a way of, in an act of worship at the temple. So they're like saying, hey, don't do that anymore. Okay, that's not, a, that's not cool. And so abstain from the meat and from the sexual morality and then from strangled meat and blood, which are kind of the same thing. Um, again, as part of the Gentile worship, a lot of times when they would sacrifice the animals, they would either drink the blood or eat meat that had blood in it as part of this kind of sacrificial system. And the Jews were on the opposite end of the spectrum. God had told them, listen, that the life blood is, the life of the animal or the person is in the blood. And so don't ever drink it, don't ever eat it. They had to drain it all out of their meat before they would cook their meat. And so this was like a major difference in worship between Gentiles and Jews was how they dealt with meat and blood in terms of sacrifices. And so he's saying, listen, basically like all these false worship, these false God were acts of worship, you're done with those, right? Now you're a Christian, now you're following Jesus, we're done with all of that. But I, really, that's not the main reason, I don't think, here. It's not just that these acts were false worship, although they were. The main thing that we're going to see is James is stressing here is that they need to avoid these things, not just because they were bad, but because they were going to offend their Jewish brothers. There were some Jews in every city. That's why he says here that Moses is proclaimed in every city. He's saying, listen, there's synagogues everywhere. There's Jews everywhere. Some of them have come to faith in Jesus, and they're your brothers in Christ now. And so you need to not do some of these activities because you're going to offend them and you're going to create a dissension and you're going, to, you're going to break the unity in the family of God if you're doing these things. In other words, don't offend your brothers. Love them. That's what he's saying. Like, don't do these four things because they're offensive. And so love your brothers enough to just stop, to just give these things up. 
In essence, he's saying that unity is more important than liberty. This is an important concept, I think, in the modern day church. Unity is more important than liberty. Throughout the years in theological circles, there's been this, this phrase that's been used to kind of talk about this idea. And I don't know who originally said it. There's been lots of people who have been credited with it, but it's been around for a while. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in everything, charity. In other words, in the essentials, unity. And when it comes to the gospel and Jesus Christ and the things that cannot be changed, that are 100%, you've got to believe this if you're a Christian, we've got to be unified on that. That is the source of our unity, Jesus Christ. But in the non-essential things, and the things that we can be different on and still be Christians, then fine, you have liberty in that. Make your own choices, do your own thing, like that's, that's okay. But in all things, charity, love for one another. That's James's point here, is we need to have charity among the brethren. We need to be willing to lay down our liberties for the love of, of our brothers and our sisters in Christ. You see, faith in Christ without the love of Christ for our brothers and sisters is woefully deficient. That is not what it looks like to follow Jesus. We can't say we believe in him and yet refuse to love each other the way that he loved us. Sacrificially, laying down our rights and our liberties for the good of one another. This is the biggest issue in the modern, or in, I'm sorry, in the, orig- in the early church during this time period. It's such a big deal that the division here in Acts 15 is what do we eat meat? Do we not eat meat? How do we fellowship together if we have different ways that we do this stuff? And Paul has to keep addressing this over and over again. He talks about it again in Romans 14. This is probably the best passage kind of summarizing this issue. In verse 1, he says this As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So here's basically what Paul's saying. Listen, there's, there's kind of two types of Christians on so, opposite ends of the spectrum here, right? You have, on this end, let's say you have the Christian who is boasting in their impeccable religion, Right? And like all the rules they keep and all the laws they follow, and they think that like their righteousness game is strong because like they're doing all this stuff. And Paul says, no, actually you're weak. Because in your so-called religiousness, you're too weak to walk in the freedom of grace without fearing sin and without judging others. So that's one side. Then Paul says, the other side is equally weak. On the other side, you have the Christian who's not boasting in their religion, they're boasting in their liberty. They're boasting in their freedoms. I'm saved, I'm forgiven, I can do whatever I wanna do, you can't tell me what to do, I, uh, uh, this is me and Jesus now, right? And Paul says, you think you're strong because you walk in so-called freedom, but you're actually weak. Because you're too weak to discipline yourself and to forego some of your rights in order to love and care for your brother. And what they're pressing us here to, Paul, James, they said, don't be either one of these. Be in the middle. Yes, you have liberties. You have freedom in Christ. 
but be willing to lay down those liberties for the love of your brothers and your sisters, for the sake of unity in God's church. We don't really deal too much with what meats to buy at Aldi and eat anymore. Like that's not a thing for us. There's not like a, a sacrifice section, a non-sacrifice section. Like we don't have that. But there are other things that the church has issues with today that we struggle with. Where's the line and how do we deal with certain liberties? I think probably the most pervasive one is alcohol. What do we do with alcohol in the church and Christianity? And so let's just kind of do like a real quick example here on this, all right? The Bible is very clear that it is not a sin to drink. It's not a sin to drink alcohol if it's done in moderation. The sin is when we step across that line into drunkenness. And so as a Christian, you have the liberty to drink alcohol if it's in moderation. However, not all Christians can handle that liberty. Some have past addictions of their own. Some have past addictions in their family that just do not allow them to engage in that activity. Some have a religious upbringing that has attached so much guilt and shame to alcohol, right or wrong, they just can't allow themselves to step into that. Some people can't, some Christians can't just because they can't do it in moderation. (laughs) They just don't have the self-control to do it the way it needs to be done. And so even uh, even though it's available and it's okay, Biblically speaking, it's not a sin to drink. There are some brothers and sisters of ours in the family of God who can't handle that liberty. So what's that mean for the rest of us? If we want to believe the Bible and do what it says, and we want to be unified with our brothers, if we want to love one another well, what does that mean? It means that sometimes we have to choose to lay down our liberty for the sake of our brothers and sisters, to love them well. And that can look different for different people in different circumstances. For Courtney and I, we made the choice a long time ago just to abstain from all of it because we want to just be able to love and lead our family and our church family and anybody that God brings to us well. So we've just decided that's just not not something we're going to do right now. There are other Christians that I know that I love and respect and I believe love Jesus and are leading well, and they have a different way to look at it. Maybe they'll drink in their home when it's just them and their spouse. Or maybe they'll do it with friends that they know have the same view and heart as them, but they won't in other places around those who they don't know what their view is and they know that they can't. And they kind of do it in a case-by-case basis. That's, that's fine. The real question is, am I running this through the filter of love for my brothers and sisters in Christ? Or am I standing up and declaring my freedom and my liberty and my rights, and I don't have to bend because I get to do what I want to do. It doesn't matter what you think or feel about it. Paul calls that weak. And I don't think that that's ever an example of sacrificial love, the way that Jesus gave to us. And so we have to wrestle with this because a gospel that's deficient of the love of Jesus is really no gospel at all. So they wrestle through this issue here. They send the letter. And so it says they sent Judas and uh, Judas called Barsabbas, which is good, good call. Like anytime you got the name with that dude, like change it, right? So Barsabbas and Silas, they sent them with the letter to Antioch and they get there and they read the letter to the church. Now think about this. If you're sitting in that church and they just told you that you can't do four things that you're used to doing or it's part of your life, part of your normal thing, sometimes we would want to push back against that, right? 
We wouldn't be like, you can't tell me what to do and rebel or challenge or... But what does it say they did? They rejoiced because of its encouragement. They didn't argue. They didn't try to challenge. They just said, thank you. We, we will gladly embrace these, law, these, these things and abstain from these things because we love our brothers and we love Jesus and we love the, the church more than we love our own rights and our own liberties. They were more than willing to lay these things down for the love of others around them. So they rejoice, they worship together, they do some teaching, and it says, then they sent them off in peace. I think more times than not, that's what we're looking for. We're all longing for that peace. And the place you're going to find true peace isn't in proclaiming your rights and your liberties and your freedoms. It's not going to be in practicing your religious rules. It's going to be laying down your life in love for Jesus and for others. That's where peace comes from. It's that unity that we only find in Christ. Our unity with one another is displayed most in our love for one another. If we're going to be a church that has unity, that that is walking in step with the Spirit and with one another, it happens and it starts with love for one another in Jesus. That's what the gospel looks like in the life of the church. Only the Son of God can give me true unity with the family of God. That's That's what it is. All the other stuff might be good stuff, But at the end of the day, unless we have Jesus at the center, unless Jesus is the source of our unity, it will not work. Because only in Christ do I find the love I need to sacrifice myself and sacrifice my desires and my liberties for the good of the family. Harvest, I hope and I pray that we are always a church that is willing to love each other and love those around us enough to lay down our labels and lay down our liberties and just say, Jesus, it's all about him. Always, forever, Jesus is enough. We don't need anything else. We're just gonna press in to him. That's where unity comes from. Let's stand. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing. We're just gonna respond to the Lord. Let's ask him to just knit our hearts together this morning through the person of Christ. Heavenly Father, first of all, we just praise you that we can be here this morning. Lord, I have no idea what the next couple weeks are going to hold. Lord, but we know that we we are thankful to be here together with our brothers and sisters, unified as a church, worshiping you, seeking your face. God, we want to always be this. We want to always be a church that is running after you and running after that sacrificial love that you gave for us, Lord God. God, thank you for sending your perfect son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, to bring us salvation, to finish it, to finish everything that we need on the cross. Help us, Lord, not to settle for uniformity. Help us not just to look the same or talk the same or or do religion. Lord, help us to seek true unity by loving one another well. 
Lord, knit our hearts together. Let Jesus be the source of everything in our hearts and our lives, God. Lord, we put our hope, our trust, our unity in nothing else but you. Lord, we declare today that Christ is enough for us. pray all this in Christ's name.